High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. You must just a kid, a child. Welcome to another episode of Make Me Over, a special presentation of You Must Remember This. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today's episode is about one of the biggest rock stars of the 1960s. That wasn't meant to be a pun, but unfortunately, for over 50 years, much of the discourse surrounding Cass Elliot has revolved around the fact that she was physically larger than most female celebrities during her lifetime. Today's storyteller is Lexi Pandell. Lexi has written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, and tons of other publications. And she's sitting with me here in the studio in San Francisco, California. Lexi, who was Mama Cass? Cass Elliot possessed one of the most influential voices of the 1960s. As a member of the Mamas and the Papas, hers stood out among the four-part harmonies on the hit single, California Dreamin'.
Later, she embarked on a solo career. She stood out from the other three band members in the Mamas and the Papas because of her charisma, her powerful and unique voice, and because she was one of the first fat women in modern pop music. She had one of the biggest and brightest personalities of her generation, too. And as a fat woman in an image-obsessed industry, she paved the way for a new kind of celebrity. She broke barriers despite how she looked, then became famous because of it. Yet today, many have forgotten her contributions to rock and roll and the cultural history of the 1960s, her star power dimmed by jokes about her weight and her early death. Cass's untimely demise stands out from other deaths among that generation because of the terrible urban legend that persists to this day. Cass Elliott is perhaps best known for choking to death on a ham sandwich. Mama Cass Elliott, the robust, rotund singing star, died today in London. 33 she was. Doctors say Miss Elliott apparently choked to death on a ham sandwich. Dennis Joplin, deceased alcohol. Mama Cass, deceased ham sandwich. Mama Cass had shared a sandwich with Karen Carpenter. They both would be alive today. (laughs) Though Cass has been the butt of jokes for decades since her death, her actual story is no laughing matter. Pop culture embraced Cass, but not without entrapping her in a cycle of fat shaming, sending her spiraling into catastrophic diets. In this episode, we'll examine the music industry's complicated relationship with weight, how crash diets may have contributed to the death of this powerhouse music legend, and the true legacy of Cass in pop culture. Join us, won't you? As Lexi Pandel tells us the story of Cass Elliot. Ellen Naomi Cohen was born in Baltimore in September 1941 to Russian Jewish parents. In some ways, her childhood was unstable. Her father opened and always seemed to be shuttering restaurants, delis, and catering services. Ellen began gaining weight around age eight following the birth of her sister, Leah. As she grew up in the 1940s and 50s, Ellen stuck out among her family members at school, pretty much everywhere, as the fat girl. Back then, being fat was less common than it is today. While CDC data on obesity doesn't start until 1960, those records show that obesity rates have increased three times since then, with almost 40% of adults considered obese as of 2016. In terms of role models, there were few fat celebrities and virtually none in pop music. There was Jackie Gleason on The Honeymooners and Etta James in the R&B scene. Though the ideal woman was curvy such as Marilyn Monroe and Sophia Loren, curvy back then meant voluptuous. Plus-size fashion didn't yet exist. However, Ellen felt her difference would propel her to stardom. I'm going to be the most famous fat girl, she denounced. At first glance, it seemed unlikely. One fellow student later described her as being a, quote, large, rotund, overweight girl, with braces on her teeth and part of her lunch stuck to them. But Ellen was funny, wildly smart, and personable. This helped her deflect the unkind opinions of others and gained her friends, 
though her size remained a source of private frustration. When Ellen was in her early teens, the family doctor prescribed her diet pills, which contained dexedrine, an amphetamine. This medication distracted Ellen at school and ultimately didn't help her drop pounds. So Ellen's parents sent her to a psychoanalyst, something which was extremely stigmatizing for a teenager in the 1950s. Though this analysis didn't work for Ellen as a weight loss tool, it just goes to show how desperate her parents were to fix her. Ellen found solace in performing, singing in the school choir and participating in theater. By this point, at age 17, she understood her weight could keep others from recognizing her talent, but she still had an unshakable belief that she was destined for stardom. Though she'd planned to attend Swarthmore for college, Ellen dropped out a few months before high school graduation and decided to move to New York. She struck a deal with her parents. She'd give herself five years to make it as an entertainer. If it didn't work out, she'd come home. Almost five years to the day from when she left, California Dreamin' was released. In New York, Ellen forged a new identity, Cass Elliott. Her story about that moniker changed depending on the day. Cass was always a little hard to pin down in that way, intentionally obfuscating the origins of her stage name, making the confusion part of her persona. Here she was on The Mike Douglas Show in 1970. Is Cass your real name? Cassandra. Cassandra. That's a nice name. That's nice. Classy, huh? And Elliot is your real name? More or less. (laughs) (laughs) However she got the name... The newly born Cass Elliott began singing at the Showplace, a West Village theater. As the club manager said of Cass, quote, She had beautiful hair and lovely eyes, but she was fat and kind of floppy and did not dress very well. But when she sang, she just turned on thousands of watts of talent. Yes, Cass was fat, but some of how she was perceived lay in how she projected herself her big personality, her presence. She stood just five foot five and favored large tent-like clothes. If they were intended to hide her body, they didn't do the trick. Those outfits made her seem even larger, though magnificently so, like a depiction of a saint with wide flowing robes. By 1962, Cass had found a place in the DC folk music scene, But she didn't fit the image that would later be embodied by the likes of Joni Mitchell, Joan Baez, and Mary Travers. These were sprite-like wisps of women whose ethereal beauty was a major component of their star power. She may not have looked the part, but Cass's talent was undeniable, and when she met the right collaborators, it became unignorable. Cass followed a banjo player named Tim Rose to Chicago, where the pair formed a trio with singer John Brown, calling themselves the Triumvirate. She and Tim then broke off to form a group called the Big Three, with a different singer, Jim Hendrix. When the Big Three gained some traction, even performing on The Tonight Show, it seemed Cass's size wasn't a liability, but almost a selling point. It set the big three apart from other folk groups. Performing alongside her bandmates, Cass dominated the stage. A remarkable-looking woman with a long, oval face and thick auburn hair, 
flanked by two comparatively milquetoast men. Soon, Cass split off once more, this time taking Jim Hendricks with her to form the Mugwumps alongside two other men. There was John Sebastian, future member of the Love and Spoonful, and Denny Doherty, a man who would for many years be the object of Cass's unrequited love. Lanky, with blue eyes, 23-year-old Denny was a heartthrob. Cass and Denny spent long nights drinking together, and when they were apart, hours talking by phone. Denny saw Cass as a dear friend. Cass saw Denny as the love of her young life. With the mugwumps, Cass began to find some sense of belonging. As John Sebastian put it, quote, there wasn't going to be anybody going, hey, fat Ellen Cohen, in this setting, because here, this was a safe place. But once more, Cass would break away, this time to chase Denny. And together, Cass and Denny would join a band called the Mamas and the Papas. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Denny had met tall, eccentric John Phillips and his delicate, pretty wife Michelle Phillips while on tour. John had been a member of The Journeyman, a band whose single, 500 Miles, is one of the most recognizable tunes of the early 1960s Greenwich Village folk scene. During that time, John met 17-year-old Michelle, a model and wild child, who had been floating around the San Francisco music scene. John, almost twice her age, left his first wife and two kids to be with her. Denny, John, Michelle, and Cass would eventually join forces as the Mamas and the Papas. Denny was the lead singer, John the songwriter, Michelle had the looks, and Cass brought the voice and personality. But Cass almost didn't make it into the Mamas and the Papas at all. When the Mugwumps had hit a ceiling, executives at their label, Warner Brothers Records, thought Cass's size was their barrier to popularity. By the mid-1960s, live bodies were trendy. In New York, Edie Sedgwick was popularizing a matchstick thin and amphetamine chic. And in London, 
fashion model and it girl Twiggy emerged and was declared the face of 1966. At five foot six, Twiggy weighed just 92 pounds. Within the counterculture movement, androgyny was all the rage too, which, for women, meant lanky, boyish frames. Warner Brothers suggested Cass lose weight and offered to pay for a 30-day health clinic. She rejected the idea, a choice her bandmates supported, even though the record label was framing Cass's weight loss as a necessity for marketing the band. But Cass got the message that her size could be an impediment to her stardom, and though she appeared confident in her body on stage, she internalized the criticism of her weight. This criticism would eventually lead Cass to embark on many diets. And it's no wonder Cass became even more self-conscious about her weight after meeting Michelle Phillips. Beautiful, skinny, a literal model from California. Cass liked Michelle, and the two would become close. But when John and Denny decided they wanted to form a new band with Michelle, a woman with a wafer-thin voice to match her toothpick frame, it was clear they wanted Michelle for her beauty, which both John and Denny were entranced by. John, as the leader of the band, wasn't interested in bringing on Cass, who may have been more vocally talented, but didn't have the look John desired at the front and center of his group. Most accounts of the forming of the Mamas and the Papas suggest that John's distaste for Cass's size was the major obstacle to her joining the group, and that his sizeism negatively colored her experience once he finally did relent and allow Cass into the Mamas and the Papas. It's worth noting that Michelle's account of the formation of the band differs. I remember John very much wanting her in the group, uh, but Cass saying no, that she would never appear on the same stage with me and let an audience make the distinction between the two of us. But according to Cass's biographer, Eddie Figel, Michelle's memory is, quote, adamantly refuted by everyone else who was there, including John. John made up excuses for excluding Cass, including that her vocal range was too low. The truth was, he didn't like the way she looked. Mitch, Denny, and I were three string beans, and she was huge, John said. He said cruel things about her size, her smell, how he thought her eyes were too close together. Michelle's sister recalled John telling Cass, Cass, I'm sorry, you're too fat. But Cass stuck around. When John, Michelle, and Denny went on a six-month trip to the Virgin Islands, she followed, bringing along a stash of acid to win them over. In the Virgin Islands, Michelle and Denny began the affair that would tear the group apart. But Cass didn't know about that just yet. She wormed her way into impromptu practices, and eventually John couldn't deny the fact that not only was she good, but she made the band. With four-person harmonies suddenly in play, she helped them generate a new sound. The power of Cass's voice carried Michelle's relatively weak one. The Mamas and the Papas signed with Dunhill Records in 1965. Cass was 24. But with sexual tension brewing between Denny and Michelle, and John's outsized ego constantly causing problems, things soured quickly. Though the group projected the image of being a loving, mismatched hippie family, 
Michelle later described the mamas and the papas as, quote, two and a half years of total melodrama. But they'd be stuck with each other, at least for a time, because they hit success fast. In December of 1965, they released California Dreamin', Opening with the Spanish-influenced twang of guitar, the song's lyrics evoked a nostalgia for Los Angeles from the perspective of someone weathering a New York winter, encapsulating the hippie migration to California. California Dreamin' was immediately embraced by a counterculture scene drenched in the mythos of better living in the Golden State, and it ultimately became an emblematic song of the decade. A few months later, the band issued their next hit, Monday, Monday, a lyrically simple tune about the start of the work week, enriched by layers of harmonies. Monday, Monday, so good to me. Monday morning, it was all I hoped it would be. Fans loved Cass. She was the most recognizable member of the group, and no one had seen a star quite like her before. As Esquire put it, quote, The diet food people must have hated her the way nose surgeons are said to hate Streisand. While the mamas and the papas were defining a lifestyle for their fans to emulate, Cass was redefining the concept of beauty among the young. She got the most fan letters, and on stage, she'd joke around with the crowd, as New York Magazine said, quote, she has broken the strongest barrier for an aspiring star. In America, the most weight-conscious nation in the world, she has become a glamour girl. She is a star not despite her weight or because of it, but beyond it. But Cass's new stardom was little consolation when the band exploded in personal and sexual strife. Michelle's affair with Denny became an open secret infuriating John and devastating Cass, who felt heartbroken over Denny and betrayed by Michelle. John and Michelle decided to have a trial separation. Yet Cass found no ally in John, who resented her popularity, resented her for existing, resented her body. He had no problem saying things to her like, quote, you should have your own record label, Cass, Fat Records. Then the record label's ads could read another obese release from Fat. On the famous Mamas and the Papas song, Creaky Alley, which chronicles the band's rise to fame, John wrote the kicker to their chorus. McQueen and McGuire's just a getting higher in L.A., you know where that's at. And no one's getting fat except Mama Cass. No one's getting fat except Mama Cass. It was supposedly an allusion to her getting richer, but everyone understood what it really meant. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing... Everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, 
inventory HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. Cass's social life outside of the group was at its height. Cass's close friend, rock star Graham Nash, compared her to Parisian salon matron Gertrude Stein as her Laurel Canyon home became the center of the L.A. music scene. The singer Donovan wrote a song about her titled Fat Angel. One telling goes that Crosby, Stills, and Nash formed at her house. Joni Mitchell and Eric Clapton were regulars. These artists whiled away their days singing beside her pool, writing on her walls, and eating the fabulous delicatessen food she'd have catered. She always had lots of devoted male friends. As Graham Nash said, quote, it was romantic. It just wasn't sexual. You could only be romantic with Cass. She brought that out in everybody, all her male friends. We all courted Cass. We paid homage to Cass. Most, like Graham and his bandmate David Crosby, ultimately viewed her platonically. Some, including Denny, said outright that her size held them back from becoming intimate with her. Cass was enamored of myself. Had been from the get-go. She told Denny how she felt. And he told her that he just couldn't deal with the weight. Yet she did find romantic partners. While on tour with the Mamas and the Papas, Cass became pregnant from a one-night stand with Charles Wayne Day, a bass player for the band. She kept the identity of her child's father a secret and, defying norms for the time, decided to become a single mother. She gave birth to a daughter she named Owen Elliott in April 1967. After that, Cass became determined to lose weight. She didn't want her daughter to be made fun of for having a fat mom. Cass had dabbled in diets since her days with the mugwumps, which mostly meant cutting calories for a few weeks at a time before getting frustrated by the lack of results and returning to her usual eating habits. This was very different. In a piece she later penned for Ladies Home Journal, Cass wrote, quote, My diet formula was very simple, starvation. For five months, she fasted four days a week, only consuming water and an occasional glass of orange juice. Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, she'd have one evening meal of steak and vegetables and maybe a cup of cottage cheese in the mornings. As a result, she lost 70 pounds, much of which she'd ultimately gain back. It was the beginning of a lifelong series of severe yo-yo diets. As Cass told Dinah Shore in 1972, 
I've been dieting for so many years that I can just look at something and know how many no. calories are in it and the carbohydrates yeah. and, you know, yeah. and who its mother was. Yeah. You know, I really am familiar with it. She picked up a heroin habit, too, thanks to her lover, Pick Dawson, a notorious L.A. drug dealer. The Mamas and the Papas carried on for just a short while longer. John and Michelle co-organized the Monterey Pop Festival, which the Mamas and the Papas headlined, though their performance seemed disorganized and discordant. The band tried going on a European trip together as a publicity stunt and a way to patch things over between band members. But Cass was arrested in England for pilfering some blankets from a hotel. Actually, the cops were hoping to get intel about her drug dealer boyfriend, Pick. Cass later told Michelle that the cops mostly asked about Pick's whereabouts, money laundering schemes, and the like. Though the two slept together, Pick didn't readily divulge information about himself, so Cass didn't have much to spill. In 1969, Cass would be interrogated by police about Pick yet again, that time in connection with the Manson murders. Some folks in the Hollywood scene, including John Phillips, suspected the murders were the result of a drug deal gone wrong and mistook the word pig, scrawled in blood on the wall, for pick. In England, things came to a head with John, who was still constantly degrading and humiliating Cass. She'd finally had enough. In 1968, Cass quit the band. They couldn't go on without Cass, and besides, everyone else's relationships were still on the rocks after Denny and Michelle's affair. The mamas and the papas announced that they'd broken up. Cass launched a solo career, one which would produce five albums. In 1968, she released her first single, Dream a Little Dream of Me. Though it was a cover, hers would become one of the most famous versions. The poster for the single featured Cass nude and stomach down in daisies, transforming her into a sex symbol in a way fat women had never been by the entertainment industry. Cass's solo career was a bit odd, with her music veering from bluegrass to show tunes to gospel. She never seemed to land on a consistent style, not even for a single album. Throughout this time, she kept at it with the bad boyfriends who used her for her wealth, and kept her hooked on drugs. She began running out of money. So, in a decision that cemented her as a commercial artist and divorced her from the counterculture, Cass agreed to headline for three weeks at Caesars in Las Vegas. Glitzy acts like the Rat Pack and Liberace dominated the Vegas entertainment scene in the 1960s, playing to the city's high rollers. Vegas seemed like a bad match for Cass's Earth Mama persona, and people didn't understand why she would play there. But Caesars was offering good money, $40,000 a week, which in 2019 would be the equivalent of about $300,000 a week, and Cass felt she could make her show special. The whole production was expensive and over-the-top, with psychedelic lighting, a six-piece rock band, and a 20-piece orchestra. Cass began starving herself again in anticipation, and this time she dropped almost 100 pounds. But the side effects were disastrous. Plagued by an ulcer, fever, and sore throat, Cass couldn't get through a single full rehearsal. 
On opening night, she felt so sick and out of sorts from tonsillitis that she shot up with heroin to get the courage to step on stage. Though Cass used in private, she didn't tend to do it before performing. The show was a disaster. She flubbed cues and forgot lines. Her voice was hoarse. She seemed listless. And the crowd, which was all wrong for her, began trickling out mid-concert. As Esquire wrote, quote, Mama Cass wasn't a hippie. She wasn't sexy. And having nearly killed herself losing 100 pounds for her solo debut, she wasn't even very fat. At least fat would have been something. So what was there to see? Even when Cass nearly killed herself to fit into the mold of 1960s stardom, she literally couldn't win for losing. She flew to Los Angeles the next day for a tonsillectomy and canceled the rest of her Vegas shows. Newsweek compared the debacle to the Titanic. And for once, this wasn't a joke about Cass's size. Like the ship, Cass's Vegas show capsized on its, quote, maiden voyage. After this, Cass fell deeper into her addictions, both to the wrong men and to drugs. She married Donald von Weidemann, a journalist and an heir to a Bavarian barony. Their marriage lasted just a few months, a period of time during which they were pretty much constantly high. In addition to heroin and prescription drugs like Secanol, Cass developed a reliance on Nembutal to sleep. Cass started making lots of television appearances. It seemed that might be where her future was. In 1969, she hosted her first TV special, the Mama Cast television program, which aired on ABC. And in 1970, she appeared in the children's fantasy film, Puffin Stuff, where she sang a song called Different, the lyrics of which encapsulated much of Cass's struggles and triumphs as a fat woman in music. When I was smaller and people were taller, I realized that I was different. I had a power that set me apart. I learned to take it, to use it, to make it. It's not so bad to be different, to do your own thing and do it with heart. Not all of her forays on the screen would be so accepting of Cass. She guested on tons of shows, The Tonight Show, The Carol Burnett Show, The Dinosaur Show, Hollywood Palace, Comedy Hour, The Red Skelton Show, The Julie Andrews Hour, The Dating Game, Hollywood Squares, and even Scooby-Doo. She had to withstand fat jokes during most of them. You're not that unattractive. Look, let's face it, I have a slight weight problem for the past six months it's been nothing but jogging and steam baths and dieting but i'm getting there oh how much have you lost pound and a half how'd you do it well she uses best toothpaste right tina yes and i brush my teeth 16 times a day 16 times a day after every meal Yeah. Now, you trust me, I'm going to get you a man to carry you across the threshold. Give you like a man with a hernia. Cass often cried after these public humiliations, but went along with it because she needed the money. 
In 1974, things began changing, at least outwardly. Cass started going to psychotherapy five days a week, got sober, lost more weight, and began playing tennis. All those TV appearances created momentum. There was talk of her doing a sitcom. She returned to Vegas for a more casual show, which got glowing reviews, and then toured the country. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. But behind the scenes, Cass wasn't well. Michelle Phillips, whose daughter China was about Owen's age, arrived at Cass's house for a playdate and found that Cass had fallen down and couldn't get up. A couple months later, in April 1974, Cass was due to perform on The Tonight Show when she collapsed backstage. At the time, she waved it away as having low blood sugar levels after not eating enough. But that isn't what happened. I had Lady a very like bad this. headache yeah. that day, and um, I hadn't been able to eat anything. Ordinarily, I know you wouldn't think that was such a hardship for me, <laughs> but uh, I, my blood sugar level dropped or something, and yeah. I just sort of tipped over, and I spent about four days in the hospital. And please, I mean, I just... While friends suspected she might be using drugs again, years later, Owen would say dieting and her mother's intense schedule contributed to the spells. Cass decided to perform in London for a two-week engagement at the famed Palladium. She stayed at singer Harry Nielsen's flat. The Who's drummer Keith Moon lived there and would later die there from an overdose, but they arranged for Keith to clear out for Cass. She had wanted to get a stomach bypass, a relatively new operation for weight loss, but was told her ulcer would make such a procedure impossible. No matter, in the lead-up to the Palladium shows, she went on a new crash diet, wherein she cut out all, quote, white foods. It's hard to tell how strict she was being, whether there were cycles of starvation and binging, especially because her assistant's grocery list included items like cream, white bread, sugar, and brandy. But she reportedly 
did lose weight, a lot of it. As the Palladium shows began, she regularly needed to pause to catch her breath. She told one audience, quote, When you get to my age, nasty words like heart attack crop up. It's really not a very nice prospect, so you've got to do something to keep your weight down. Just a few months shy of her 33rd birthday, Cass wrapped her final Palladium show and received a standing ovation. She called Michelle Phillips to say how well it had gone. Despite feeling tired and almost flu-like, she went out to Mick Jagger's star-studded 32nd birthday party in Chelsea. She bounced around to several other festivities, including a cocktail party in her honor, before retiring to Nielsen's flat. Cass asked one of her assistants, who was also staying there, to fix her a snack. He put together a ham sandwich, poured a Coca-Cola, and left it on the nightstand by Cass's bed. The next morning, Cass seemed to be sleeping in late. When her assistant went in to check on her, he found her dead. The ham sandwich, it should be said, was untouched. So how did Cass become known for choking on it? Thank Dr. Anthony Greenberg for that. The London physician was the first to examine her post-mortem, and he spoke to the Daily Express, quote, From what I saw when I got to the flat, she appeared to have been eating a ham sandwich and drinking Coca-Cola while lying down, a very dangerous thing to do. This would be especially dangerous for someone like Cass, who was overweight and who might be prone to having a heart attack. She seemed to have choked on the ham sandwich. The doctor may not have intentionally lied, but rather jumped on this conclusion without thinking it through. Or perhaps he was trying to pin the blame on something, anything other than a drug overdose, which had already felled artists such as Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. Later, Cass's death was ruled as fatty myocardial degeneration due to obesity. Basically, that she suffered heart failure because she was fat. Cass weighed around 220 pounds at the time, which is only a salient point because, well, while that's technically considered overweight for a woman of her height, it's not that heavy. Weight alone would not likely cause heart failure in someone so young. As heart expert Dr. Malcolm Carruthers told Cass's biographer, quote, it is most unusual for a woman to die in her 30s of heart attack caused by overweight. Many girls who weigh double what they should live perfectly happily to a much greater age. Even today, we don't entirely understand the long-term effects of extreme dieting, especially in combination with substance abuse. One recent study of crash diets showed that while subjects initially had better insulin resistance, cholesterol levels, blood sugar levels, and blood pressure, within a couple weeks, their heart fat levels rose by 44%, interfering with heart activity. While those levels returned to normal after two months, it demonstrates that Cass's quickie diets may have done serious harm. Some have speculated whether losing so much weight so quickly meant that Cass lost muscle mass, including that around the fatty tissue of her heart. The spells where she felt dizzy and out of breath were consistent with someone experiencing heart failure. Such an end would set a precedent for another music titan's death, 
famous singer Karen Carpenter, who suffered from anorexia, also died from heart failure in 1983. Like Cass, she was just 32 years old. Cass was tormented by her weight throughout her life. The fact that she's remembered for choking on a ham sandwich only adds insult to the shame she experienced. Yet, whether or not she was a direct influence, Cass opened the doors for a lot of artists today. Despite their different vocal styles and genres, Cass is often compared to Adele, a big, witty woman with a powerful voice. She paved the way for indie rocker Beth Ditto, and even Lizzo, a singer who has publicly embraced her size and found major acclaim for doing so. Yet the woman who most shows us what Cass's life may have been like a generation later is someone far closer to Cass's circle, someone for whom weight also became a lifelong struggle. Carney Wilson is the daughter of the Beach Boys' Brian Wilson. In 1989, she teamed up with her sister Wendy and China Phillips, daughter of John and Michelle, to form the band Wilson Phillips. In that group, there was once again a tiny blonde, in this case China, propped alongside the buxom brunette Carney. Wilson Phillips had a couple of major hits in the early 1990s, propelled by MTV. In the video for their biggest hit, Hold On, while the other girls in the band were dressed in sleeveless black dresses, Carney was clad in an oversized black blazer on the beach. The intention was likely to hide Carney's body, but just like Cass before her, Carney became the most recognizable member of her singing group. And she was the only member of Wilson Phillips to transition from relatively short-lived MTV stardom into a substantive television career. She had her own daytime talk show called Carney and would eventually host the newlywed game. But Carney's size was always the subject of ridicule. In a 1999 appearance on The Howard Stern Show, producers set up a cruel prank to mock Carney's weight. This humiliating experience left a lasting impact, as Carney explained on the talk in 2017. Went to do the Howard Stern show. And when he was on E, he had that, you know, it was on, on camera. Okay. So when I walked in, the producer, Gary, said, oh, step, step right over here and, and wait for Howard. Well, I didn't know this, but I was stepping on a scale. <laughs> on a scale. And I looked up because in red, big number, letter, whatever's 233 pounds showed up on this thing. And I went, wait a minute, what? And I looked down and I was like, Oh, God. And all I could think of was Howard ready to shame me, you know. So and they of course, purposely he, did that? They purposely did it. In 1999, Carney underwent gastric bypass surgery, a procedure that Cass had longed for but was unable to get due to her ulcers. Carney broadcast the procedure online. She lost half her weight only to regain it. She went on Celebrity Fit Club in 2006 and later her own reality show, Carney Wilson unstapled. Her show was part self-promotion, part advertisement for the Fresh Diet. Oh my okay. God! So yeah. Carney's meal plan. Whoa! I took some time and 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 really sure did this did. right for you because this is the don't list. There's no question that Angela knows what she's talking about. However, her food plan 
It is so strict. Unless that woman is ready to be here 24 hours a day, I just, I don't know if I can follow this. No sugar, no bread, no white bread, no, no white, white pasta. Nothing white. nothing white. It lasted just one season, partly because Carney controversially gained weight on the very diet she was shilling. In the 1960s, Cass Elliott had a revolutionary impact on beauty standards for celebrities and the fans who looked up to them. Yet, while it can be tempting to say we've come a long way in terms of body acceptance, our culture remains hostile toward fat women, as Carney Wilson is well aware. For every Lizzo or Adele, there are hundreds of tabloid and reality show narratives about famous women trying, succeeding, and often failing to take up less space. Until the collective culture stops buying those narratives, stories like Cass's and Carney's are doomed to repeat. Thanks for listening to Make Me Over, a special presentation of You Must Remember This. This episode was written and performed by Lexi Pandel. Make Me Over was created and directed by Karina Longworth. That's me. I also edited the scripts. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Make Me Over is produced by Tomika Weatherspoon. And the audio is edited by Jared O'Connell and Tomika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineers are Jared O'Connell, Andrea Christens, and Brendan Burns. The supervising producer is Josephine Martirana, and the executive producer is Chris Bannon. We'll be back next week with another tale about the intersection of 20th century Hollywood and the beauty industry. Join us then, won't you? Good night.